and then after that, after we go through Haggai, we're going to be in the book of Mark. Uh, the ESV journals are in the bookstore. If you want those, it's just uh, a little book that has the book of Haggai in it and a place to take notes. And then we'll be doing that for Mark uh, as well if you want to take notes. We're also going to be uh, redoing the way in which we do all of our uh, bulletins and things like that. And so we are going to be, as Amy mentioned, you know, moving away from some of the hard copy stuff into the digital realm a little bit more. Um, but when we start a new series, we're going to provide for you an overview of the book that we're in, uh, a little kind of bookmark thing you can keep in your Bible. I think you guys will appreciate that. Uh, so be on a lookout for that. And then we're redoing all of our visitor packet stuff. And so if you're new, uh, we're going to be encouraging you to uh, be looking at those things that, that we have going on. And as Amy mentioned, uh, if you are new and you want to know what's happening, the app is the place uh, to find everything. There's a place to take notes. There's a Bible uh, in there if you want to read along. Uh, different versions of the Bible are in that app as well. Uh, all of our backlog sermons are in there. there there's all kinds of stuff inside that uh, app. So make sure you download it if you haven't yet. If you don't have a Bible this morning, too, raise your hand, and one of the guys would love to hand you a, a, one of our Bibles. You can keep if you don't own one, but just keep your hand up. <clears throat> Turn to Matthew 28. If, if uh, you want to also see another verse that I'm going to mention um, I, that, that is actually a key verse for this morning, go to Proverbs chapter 18. You're going to want to keep your finger in Matthew 28 as well as uh, Proverbs 18. I'm going to kind of glue these two pieces together this morning. Uh, and then I will say also uh, at, for the farewell party, if for some reason you're one of those individuals that wants to give uh, to Wayne's retirement, you want to give him a financial gift, uh, we are taking those. Just make sure you put it in the memo and uh, we'll give that to Wayne along with some of the other gifts and things we have for him. <clears throat> um, and then I'll make... Mention, I'm going to do my best uh, to be short and, and punchy this morning. Some uh, individuals may mention that they would appreciate it if I would end early because there was a football game on later. Um, hey, if you guys would just be as passionate about Jesus. Uh, if you have the ability to and you're in Matthew 28, would you stand with me, please? Uh, and if you're new, we do this just to honor the word of the Lord. It's a way to position our hearts and our minds and our bodies to receive what it is that God wants to have to say to us. Matthew 28, we've been in it for a few weeks. Uh, and I'm going to kind of, uh, for the previously, we've kind of been a little bit more on the philosophical end of why discipleship and, and that we are disciples. We've talked about uh, the, the reality that we want to be a church that makes disciples and follows after Jesus. We don't want to be a seeker-sensitive church. We don't want to have any other model before us except for teaching the Word of God. And so we've just been taking a few weeks to, to just get into these last words that Jesus has spoken to his disciples. And if you're not familiar at this point, Jesus is on a hillside in Galilee, and he's preaching to about 500 of his disciples. About 500 people are here. And he is passing on the mission of the church to uh, his followers, and this is what he says, verse 16. <clears throat> now, the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Lord, 
minister to us through your word. Push aside distraction, and may we truly sit in your presence and hear from you this morning, and we trust you for it. In Jesus' name, the church said, amen. amen. You can be seated. Thank you. Um, the, sec- the segment I, <clears throat> I want to focus on this morning, uh, really, everything's going to kind of be folded into the last part of verse 20 in Matthew 28. Uh, Here you can see the last words of Jesus, behold, I am with you. I'm with you. So I want you just to circle that, underline it, highlight it, whatever works for you. I want you to see the importance of that. Uh, And as I said this morning, I kind of want to move from the philosophy of discipleship into the practicality of discipleship. So if you've been with us the last few weeks, you know, we've defined, uh, we've done our best to try to define what a disciple is and what a disciple is not. And so we've defined discipleship uh, the way that we believe the Bible defines it, which is to be a follower of Jesus, which you see on our publications and screens and all over the place. We want to follow Jesus and make disciples. Now, that word disciple uh, also means that we would follow after, we would emulate, we would become students of Christ, of Jesus. He's got the authority. He says it here in the verse. All uh, authority is mine. Everything belongs to me. And if you would follow me, you'll have this mission that I have, which is to teach all the world who I am. Uh, I want to give you seven observations of practicality from this passage, and then I'm going to tease out into a little bit more uh, of what's here. But uh, again, I, I haven't done this yet, but I want you to see it. There's at least seven. That doesn't mean that, that, uh, that there are less than seven. There aren't. That there could be more than seven for sure. So let's just look here. Here's, here's number one. Now, what I'm attempting to do this morning, like I said, is, is give us some practicalities of the title of the message this morning. The tag of the message this morning is Marks of a Disciple. So, so what, what I'm trying to do at this point is say, if, if you're a disciple of Jesus, if you're a follower of Christ, what would you be marked by? Remember last week I stated, uh, out of the promises of Jesus, that, that one of those promises, why we should follow after Jesus, is all of the labels that are given to Jesus are also given to us. There's a unity that we have with Jesus. So if we say Jesus is righteous, as followers of Christ, we are also righteous. We are labeled the same way that Jesus is labeled. So seven observations, markers that we should have real quickly from this text. Verse 16 has the first one, okay? Practicality, uh, really boots on the ground, rubber meets the road. What kind of things should mark us as followers of Jesus? Another way to say it, that marks us is we've made Jesus our Lord, and so we're gonna submit to him. Here's number one, verse 16. Look at verse 16. They went to the mountain in which Jesus had directed them. That's number one. Number one mark of a disciple from this passage is an availability and a willingness to serve Jesus. Notice Jesus says, here's the mountain. Go to that mountain and wait for me. We also see that in the book of Acts. Go to Jerusalem. Go to this upper room. Wait for me. Wait for what I'm going to give you, the promise of the Holy Spirit. One of the marks that should mark us as followers of Christ is an availability, a willingness to go anywhere that Jesus calls us to go. So if Jesus says, go share with your neighbor, you're going to go share with your neighbor. If Jesus says, it's time to pray, you're going to pray. If Jesus says, it's time 
to give a chunk of money to something, then you better give that chunk of money to something. I had a guy several years ago said, hey, man, I, I, I got to take you to, to lunch. I'm going to take you to lunch. Now, in my position, anytime somebody wants to take me to lunch, that usually the translation is, I need to complain to you about something. Uh, I need to tell you how you should be doing something. So, most of, I know it's kind of a sad deal, but when someone says, hey, I'd love to take you out, I immediately go, here we go, right? So I went with this gentleman. We sat down together. He looked at me across the table and he said, I've got X amount of dollars in the bank. Jesus has told me to give them to the church and I just wanted to let you know. And I said, take me to lunch anytime you want. <laughs> These are the kind of lunch appointments I want to have. Uh, and we use those funds in part uh, to hire Joe Casey, who's now in the position that Brad Franklin is in. And so that investment has paid dividends, right? Because someone was obedient to the willingness, being willing and open to the things of Jesus, being willing to invest in the things of the kingdom. Number two is in verse 17. Notice, when they saw him, what did they do? They worshiped. Another mark of a disciple, a follower of Jesus, one who's learning from Jesus, is a worshiper of Jesus. Another way to say this, the way we've termed it, is to give God glory, right? Disciples are willing and available. I'm going to go to the mountain of Galilee. I'm going to go wherever Jesus points me, whether it's Jerusalem, whether it's Reno, whether it's Sacramento, whether it's Africa, wherever he says, I'm going to go and be willing. But number two, I'm going to give him glory wherever I go. I'm going to give Jesus credit for all that is good and all that is right, and I will even take the blame for the things that miss the mark, knowing that I'm imperfect, but Jesus is perfect. So disciples are radically uh, wanting to glorify God. Uh, take note uh, here in the verse, though. Notice it says that they, they worshiped him and, and some doubted. And the way that this is written is as if kind of the disciples are kind of wrestling between both. I want to worship Jesus. I want to follow Jesus. At the same time, if I'm honest, this takes a little bit of a step of faith takes a little bit of a risk to give my life completely over to somebody else. And so there is a little bit of doubt there, no different than the gentleman who said, Lord, I believe, but what? Help my unbelief. So there's this reality as a disciple, I'm, I'm going to want to give God glory. I'm going to be available. But at the same time, I might waffle a little bit in my thoughts. I like how uh, I had heard someone uh, go up to John MacArthur one Sunday. John MacArthur's known as a, a, a solid Bible teaching kind of guy. And someone walked up to John MacArthur after service and said, you know, John, I'm not sure I agree with everything that you're teaching. And John looked at him and said, that's okay. I'm not sure I agree with everything that I've said either. Right? It, it's this reality. In fact, at Grace Community Church, they have a, a saying, someone might have to help me with it, that, that that their statement of faith is these things in which we teach. Is that right, John? Right? These are the things in, that we teach because there's a difference between what I teach and what I believe, and they have enough wisdom to understand that we may be teaching a particular truth, but that doesn't mean we've completely submitted over to that truth because all of us are in a process of growing and submitting more and more to our Savior, which leads me to my third point of observation in verse 18. Look at verse 18. Jesus said to them, all authority has been given to me. That means he has the authority. We do not. We submit to him. That's the third marker, submission. Right? So we have a willingness to be available. We want to give him glory, but we are radically committed to being submit, 
being submissive to Jesus. What what that means is when Jesus says something, we do it. We conform our life to the things of God. We conform our rhythm of life to the things of God. We conform our marriages to the things of God. We want to raise our kids according to the things of God, according to God's word. And so we submit. Number four, verse 19. Should be obvious, but one of those markers in verse 19, notice the commandment he mentions to his disciples. What does he say in the beginning there? Go. Disciples are goers, right? They're, they're not passive. They're not spectators. They don't ride the bench. They don't ride the pine. There is no second and third string Christians. There is no sitting on the sideline of Christianity. You've got to be involved. And so Jesus' commandment to his followers, you got to go. You got to be a mover. You got to be a shaker. You got to be willing to do some things for the Lord. And then look at verse 19. Uh, in addition to go, he tells us to go and make disciples of what? Oh, you've heard me say it, right? Everybody. Make disciples out of everybody. I like you. Some of you are like, the, the word says nations. I know, but everybody sounds like everybody. Everybody. What he's saying here is a disciple is for all people. Right? As a church, we don't say, we don't say you know what? We're only going to reach into our youth. Though that's very important. We're not going to have just a youth program. We're not going to just a WANA program. I mean, we have every program you could possibly think. And, and if we're honest, they're not even programs. We don't like calling them programs, but rather avenues in which people can be discipled. So we have a men's ministry, mags groups, men's breakfast, right? An avenue in which you can learn from the Lord and grow according to the Lord. We have avenues for women. We have avenues for kids. We have places where you can serve in every little direction you could think or imagine because we want to be goers, but we want to be for all people. Every tribe, every tongue, every nation. That's why we give away close to 30% of all of our funds to church planning, missionaries, to get the funds and the resources outside of the church walls to reach as many people for Jesus as possible. Got to be people who are for all people. Marker number six is in verse 20. Teaching. We're learners. That's another way of saying it. We, we, we want to grow. We don't ever say we know it all because we don't. You, you've heard me say it before. You don't need perfect leaders. You need growing leaders. You want pastors and elders that, that want to grow that are finding new ways to be stretched, new ways to, to discover new things. I don't, I don't, that's why I love church history. There's always something cool to be found in church history. Uh, if you go back and you read how certain guys responded and reacted to certain things, in fact, uh, I'll, I'll, let me share with you a little piece of, can I share with you a little piece of our church history? So we've gone through all these changes over the last several years. The last five years of ministry, for me uh, in particular, have been just, it's been a full fun roller coaster from uh, staff retiring to the pandemic to, to changes in the office to all, all kinds of things. Won't even get into all of them, but it's been a lot of change. And, and you know, Wayne has stepped aside. Now that Wayne has moved on, Brad Knoll, after 14 years, has his own office. Yeah. He's excited. He's really excited. Is he excited, Lael? Is he like a little kid? Came in, came in, he's like, this is my office, painted the whole thing blue. Whole thing's blue because he loves blue. And everyone said, you shouldn't paint it blue. And now it looks great. It's blue. He's got his own office. Right? Finally, change. Brad and Pam moved to Texas. 
Amy comes into the office. Joe Casey comes into the office. Now we're making all changes, 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 changes. And during the changes, all of these changes in our church history, Amy and Joe have been cleaning up back here. And some of you don't, you're like, what's back here? You may not know this or not. There is a storage unit all up in here. All of our books from like the last hundred years are back here. Okay. And I can go back there right now. And that projection light shoots from back. I could give you a little animal show and, and entertain you with the dog and a, do it. You want me to do it? All right. Hold on. I'll be right back. So, so there's a whole thing. And, and everything that you can think of has been stored up there over the years. And all of a sudden, Joe and Amy come down from the little loft with a document from 1978, 1979, Sierra Bible Church. It was the year I was born. And what was really neat about reading this document was to see the history of the church since 1978 and 79. 1978, 1979 was the year that Pastor Brian Larson left Sierra Bible Church to plant Calvary Chapel of Truckee. It was at the lake originally. And there's always been this kind of little symbiotic relationship between us and Calvary over the years. It's the same exact year another pastor by the name of Pastor Ray decided to take up the senior pastor position to fill in for uh, Pastor Brian Larson after pra Pastor Brian left. Pastor Ray, uh, once he, he started preaching here a little while after that, he actually passed away in an airplane crash. And that's why uh, Ray Hall is called Ray Hall. It's named after one of our church fathers. And in the document, 1978, the lead pastor made under $12,000 a year. Secretary, I think, made 8000 a year. Lucrative position. I'm sure the money met more in 1978, right? And in there, it talked about how they wanted to preach the word and how they were discipling, how they were growing. At the time, in 1978 and 79, uh, at the time of this big shakeup, the, the, the only building that existed was the one next door, and there was two services, completely full, about 200 people, called Sierra Bible Church Home. And in that document, they, they talk about in, in that document, 1978, a, a willingness to continue to preach God's word, to make disciples and to continue to reach into the community. As they said, people were getting saved left and right. And, and some, some of those individuals are still here at this church. Some of you might know Al Eberhardt, graduated uh, Tahoe Truckee High School in 1964, I think. 63, still part of the church in that document. It says that he, he, uh, uh, he helped fill in the pulpit when they were without a pastor. Faithful men, faithful women who continued to preach and teach because they were willing to continue to learn and to grow. And we should still be in that same boat. That's marker number seven, num number six. Last one in this, and then we'll, we'll move on. Look at verse 20. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. The word end of the age there is actually speaking specifically of the second coming. It's another way of saying this is that disciples are not only marked by being available, not only are they marked by wanting to give God glory and submission, not only are they marked by a willingness to go, and not only are they marked by an attitude of all people and to continue to learn, but they're constantly looking heavenward for the second coming of Jesus. Disciples are yearning for, longing for, desiring for, praying for 
the second coming, the second advent, the parousia is the Greek language there, that, that he would come again. And now we come to this final part of, of those are seven takeaways, and I want to give you one, one major one of, that, that, that should make us just totally mark us by our belief in Christ, mark us as learners of Jesus, and mark us as disciples who want to run after him. And it's going to come from this little segment here in verse 20 where Jesus says, I am with you always. I'm with you always. I'm always with you. So let me ask you the question. Here's the question. Here, here's the, 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 the gets you to start thinking about your life, that Christ can come into your heart and do the work that is necessary for your life to be what it is that Jesus wants, us, wants it to be. So let me just ask that question. Here's the question. You ready for it? When times get hard, when life gets rough, when the world seems to be crashing down around you, where do you run? Where do you hide? And now some of you may be asking, asking at this point, okay, what do you mean specifically about where do I run and where do I hide when, when times get hard? Let me show you how the Bible talks about it. Proverbs chapter 18. Proverbs 18, remember, this is all going to tie in with he's with us to the end of the age. But in Proverbs chapter 18, verse 10, the, the author of Proverbs lays out before us what it is to be a follower of, of God, Yahweh, and what it is to not be a follower of God, of Yahweh. And he gives us a contrast. Look at verse 10 of chapter 18. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. You got it? Got the visual? The name of God is so powerful, so great, so beautiful, so holy. It's like a strong tower. That's his name. And the righteous man runs into it and is safe. So what is he saying? Times get hard. Life gets rough. Things get rocky. We run to the name of the Lord. And when the Bible talks about the name of the Lord, whenever we see things like that where he talks about God's name, it's not just talking about a name, it's talking about the character of God. So he says the name of the Lord is the strong tower we run into. It's Proverbs' way of, of knowing what, what the original readers already knew, which is that God's character is in that name. So we say the name of the Lord, we're saying all that is gracious, all that is kind, all that is loving, all that is merciful and forgiving and long-suffering. All of the things that we would mark of God are true of God, and that means we're to run into that tower of God, whatever that tower is for us when, when, when life is rough. <clears throat> you with me? Now look at the contrast. He says, okay, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. Times get hard. The righteous who are righteous because of their faith in Christ, run into Jesus, and they're saved. They're going to be safe. But look at the contrast in verse 11. This is how Proverbs is written. Contrast, wisdom, look at these two things, wrestle them through, and then look at what he says, verse 11. A rich man's wealth is a strong city. So, whoa, whoa, whoa. Okay, he's tying two things together here. If you're looking at the text, you're looking, okay, verse 10 the name of the Lord is a strong tower. I want a strong tower. But then if you look in verse 11, strong city. Do you want to hide in a strong tower? Or do you want to hide in a strong city? 
Now, as a reader, you should be there. You're like, well, city, you got more room, more places to roam, more secure walls. But then notice what he says in verse 11. Rich man's wealth is his strong city. It's his strong city. It's not a strong city. It's his strong city. Then what does verse 11 say about his strong city? It's like a high wall in his imagination. He was saying, he's saying, this is what Proverbs saying. Those of us who follow after Jesus, we want to learn of Jesus. Life gets hard. Life gets difficult because we're righteous because of the faith we have in God. Whenever things get hard, we run to the name of God, to all that God is. However, when we don't have God, we may fall into the trap like the wealthy man who says, I have my own city. I've purchased my own city and I have walls around me. After all, I've purchased them. I know exactly how much my walls cost. I know what it costs to build this house. It's Proverbs way of saying all of that wealth, all of that accumulation that makes you feel safe. You're actually not safe. It's in your imagination. You know what it's like? I grew up in a home about 700 square feet, two-story house, 700 square feet, two Rottweilers, one Terrier, two cats, a cousin, me, my mom, and my dad, one bathroom, 700 square feet. Sharing is caring. Upstairs, I had a room, and in my room, the way the house was built, there there was a slant in that roof and to the point where there's about three feet, a three-foot wall, which is perfect. That's where I put my bed. This is a true story. Don't judge me. This is a true story. That's where my bed went, and the roof went right down like this. And so I slept here, and the roof went right here, and I could touch it. So I hung a picture of Cindy Crawford right there. <laughs> Don't clap. Because when my mom got saved, she tore it down. <laughs> Cindy Crawford doesn't love Jesus, is what I was told, and she got thrown in the trash. <laughs> and whenever, whenever I was scared in that room as a kid, somehow in my mind, I felt safe as long as the covers were over my head. How many of you remember as a kid feeling like there might be something under the bed, there might be something that comes into the door, I know what I'll do. I'll just cover my head. And the cookie monster won't get me, right? False assurance. That's what control is, by the way. Many of us, when control gets kind of pushed out, we start freaking out because we feel like we're not in control. Well, control is an illusion. The only one who's in control is God. So the contrast here is the righteous man runs to the Lord Right, the disciple runs to Jesus. The person who doesn't know Jesus runs into false security. And as a culture, we've got all kinds of false security that we run to. I mean, it's easy for me to pick on the false security that, that all of us know about, right? Like, like if you say, okay, Jesse, could you, could you maybe make this a little bit more practical for me to help me understand because I do want to run to Jesus and, and I don't want to run to my false security. What are some things that are false security? Well, to name a few that we all are aware of, getting drunk is running into your own city. I, I don't want to deal with the pain. I don't want to deal with life. So I'm going to take something. And if any, any of you have ever studied what alcohol does, it's a, it's a depressant. It's a suppressant. 
what alcohol does is it numbs you, like physically and emotionally, so that I no longer have to think or cope with life. Weed, same thing. Pornography, same kind of thing. And some of you go, well, I'm not into any of those things. Those are the big sins. Well, you know, we, we harp enough on social media. That's a way not to think about your life. That's running into a city, right? There's ways that we, we, if we're honest, we run away from the Lord and we run to other things to comfort us. And the call in Matthew 28 is that he's with us always. In addition to the commandment of Proverbs, of what we're reading in Proverbs, that we wouldn't run to these false cities of comfort in our imagination, but rather we would run into the name of the Lord. Well, how do we do that? How do we really run? How do we know the presence of God? Right? I mean, you and I, because we are so spoiled as Christians, cannot fathom the reality of what Jesus is saying in Matthew 28. I'm with you. When are you with me, Lord? Always. Till when? Till the end. I'm with you. So the number one mark I think, of a disciple comes from the very first words that precluded the coming of Jesus as Messiah. And they come from a man that we're all familiar with by the name of John the Baptist. And what he states to those who are about to see Jesus for the first time is, behold, there's one coming. I'm unfit to tie, even tie his sandals. But he preaches this million-dollar word, which we've all come to know and love, Repentance. See, what does it look like to run into the name of the Lord? It looks like confession and repentance. Because true confession of one's sins, true confession of one's needs leads to life, leads to vigor, leads to strength, leads to renewal. Pastor Greg Laurie, when he talks about repentance, I don't have time to read this. You can take a picture of it if you want or you can... uh, Uh, Read it as I'm speaking and and whatever you want to do. But he essentially says to one person, repentance seems like it would be a radical thing, a radical way of living. But in reality, he goes on to say that actually repentance is the radical life of Christianity. It's the normal life of Christianity. It's it's one of the reasons why you've heard me make such a big deal out of it uh, when when Luther uh, on the door in Wittenberg on the Catholic Church wanting to reform the Catholic Church, his very first point of his 95 thesis was the life of a believer is a life of repentance. And at times when we think of repentance, which repentance is to do a, a, about face, is to say, I'm no longer going to run to the city. I'm no longer going to have uh, an imagination filled with false control and false narratives and false security. I'm going to repent of that, and I'm going to run to the name of the Lord. And when I run to the name of the Lord, something's going to occur there. We'll get to that in a moment that is quite profound. But I want you to see something that's important. That, that, that if we're going to be followers of Jesus and we're going to observe all that he has commanded that includes repentance at the very least and so much more. But I want you to see in Psalm 32, verse 1, if you could turn there, Psalm 32, verse 1, I want you to see the way the psalmist here talks about his sin and talks about the lack of confession of that sin and what occurs to him, what happens to him. And then what happens when he begins to confess that sin and then 
repent of that sin and follow after Jesus. So this, this psalm, now that I made you turn there, here it is on the screen. This psalm is one of seven, what's called pitnant psalms, one of seven psalms about repentance. Psalm 32, along with Psalm chapter 6, Psalm 38, Psalm 51, which is a very famous psalm, Psalm 102, 130, and 143. All psalms written by David. If you remember David, David's sin, which is found out, David initially hides his sin. His sin gets found out. There's consequences to his sin. But if you remember David, David is, is standing up on a balcony. He's the king. He sees below his balcony a fine-looking young lady by the name of Bathsheba. She happens to be showering outside on her porch. David calls for her out of lust. He lies with her, impregnates her, and she ends up giving birth to a child. And along the way, we find out in the story, Bathsheba is actually married to a gentleman by the name of Uriah. Uriah was a soldier for David's army. David finds out about this, wants to continue to hide his sin, sends to the battlefield for Uriah. Basically says, Uriah, I'm going to hook you up, dude. Come back, lie with your wife. We're giving you a break. He comes back so that he will lie with his wife and everyone will think Uriah got his wife pregnant. No one will be any wiser that it's actually David's son that is inside of Bathsheba. So Uriah being the guy that he is, what a standing, upstanding gentleman. He, he comes back and he says, you know what? I'm not going to sleep with my wife. I'm not going to sleep inside my home while the rest of my fellow soldiers are out fighting for the Lord. And so he sleeps at the door of his own house. He doesn't even go in. Well, you would think at some point, right, if, you, if you're a man of sin and you're covering up your sin and you see the righteousness of another man, you would think being confronted with said righteousness would maybe cause you to repent and do the right thing. But instead, David doubles down. What does he do? Sends Uriah to the front of the battlefield with the intention that he will die. Again, so his sin won't be found out. That's the story of David. A man after God's own heart, we're told, because he repents. That's how one becomes a man of God, by the way. Confessing of sin and repenting of sin. Admitting that you need it, which is to step back into grace. So David talks about his sin in one of seven penitent psalms, and here is his writing here in Psalm 32, verse 1. Blessed is the one whose transgression is. Hold on. Blessed? You know what that translation is? Happy. Remember I mentioned that the the way that sin can affect you physically? He's now kind of tying it. Hey, blessed is, happy is the man whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is what? Covered. Hidden. Blessed is the man, verse 2, blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in his spirit there is no deceit. You know what no deceit means? Who's, who's not hiding. The one who's not hiding from the Lord. So blessed is, happy is the man who has no iniquity against him because he's not hiding. Verse three, for when I kept silent, he, he hasn't admitted his sin. My bones wasted away through my groaning all the day. For day and night, God's hand was heavy upon me. 
My strength was dried up by the heat of summer. Selah. Now, the psalmist does this really beautiful thing, if you're not familiar, where he throws in this language of Selah. And many theologians over the years have tried to debate what this is, but it is believed it's a pause. It's like a period in the sentence, but even more so. So he's essentially saying, happy is the man whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in him there is no deceit. He's not hiding, period, Selah. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away, groaning all the day long. And, and he adds, after being drained by the heat of summer, this language of Selah, it's a pause with reflection. What he's saying is, okay, reader, you've read the passage so far. Stop. Don't read. Quit thinking about what's happening in the rest of your day. Quit trying. I know some of you are already scheming how to get buffalo wings over at Rayleigh's. I know you're already getting the chips and salsa ready and the drink. I know your, your minds are already there in the future. And the psalmist is saying to you right now this morning, stop, meditate, think. Stop, meditate, and think. David is drawing a direct correlation between the hidden sin in his life and the physical and emotional and mental weariness that he feels. He's saying, I've, I've, not, I've hidden my sin, and in hiding my sin, I can feel it in my bones. You know what he's saying? He's saying, some of you, this isn't, this isn't for everyone, and, and as I say this, I have to do a pastoral due diligence to say, this may not be the case for everyone, but there's probably some of you that this is true for, and God wants to speak to you and minister to you this morning. What David essentially is saying is, if you have not been able to sleep recently, is it possible it's because there's unconfessed sin in your life? He's saying, if you've dealt with some physical ailments and you can't figure out why, it's possible it's because of unconfessed sin in your life. That's what he's saying. He's drawing the connection. I, my bones are hurting inside. I'm wasting away day and night. He's, I can't sleep. I've done something wrong. I know I've done it wrong and I, I, I can't sleep. But then look at what he says. Verse five, contrast. I acknowledge my sin to you and I did not cover it, did not cover my iniquity. And I said, I confess my transgressions to the Lord and you, look at, the, I confessed the faithfulness of God and you forgave my iniquity of my sin. And there it is again, Selah. But the, the author wants you to think about your forgiveness. He wants you to think about how you've been covered by God. He goes on and says this then after verse six, after we've meditated, after we've thought, therefore, therefore, we all know, therefore, what's it? Therefore, what was just written. And since he's hidden our iniquity, since he's covered us, he now tells us, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time that you may be found. Now the encouragement is seek after the Lord and confess your sin while you have time. The days of the Lord are coming. The, the day of God is coming. He's going to return. He goes on. Look at verse 7. You are what? A hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. 
You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Selah. Back to the teaching in Matthew 28. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I'll counsel you with my eye upon you. He says, this is now God speaking at the end of Psalm. You confess your sin. You bring it out. You get it out in the open. And then God guides you and directs you. You'll hear a voice, Isaiah 30. From behind you, this is the way in which you should walk. There's that sense of God being there. Now let me travel us back into the beginning of the fallenness of man. Right? You're, you're all familiar, right? Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden. And when they were in the Garden of Eden, what are we told about Adam and Eve? Well, one of the things we're told is they were naked. They, they, they had no covering. And we're also told that as they were uncovered, they were completely unashamed, transparent before the Lord. We're told that not only did they not have any clothing, which says the climate must have been completely amazing, but they walked with God in the garden. Remember Jesus, Matthew 28, behold, I'm with you always. That's the garden. Getting back to the garden is I'm with you always. They're in the garden. And then at some point they decide to participate in eating the one piece of fruit that God has said, you shall not eat. And when Eve and then Adam participated in the eating of that apple, what they were declaring, I don't need God. I don't need his rules. I don't need his guidance or his protection. I can know good and evil. I can have this knowledge and feel as if I'm my own God if I just participate and bite of this fruit. And they did. And the result was the cancer that is known sin floods into their bodies, which then flooded into every human person thereafter, the DNA of fallen nature, sin, and brokenness. But do you remember after they eat the apple, God shows up in the garden and he's really curious. Adam, Eve, where are you? They were hiding. Not hiding in the garden. Not hiding from, from their own evil. Hiding from God. And God shows up and he basically, and he knows, he, God's not an idiot, is he? What did you do? And then, because God is gracious and God is kind, what does God do? He clothes them. He clothes them. And what we're told is that he uses animal skin to clothe them. He, he literally, God provides the very first sacrifice to clothe the nakedness and shame that Adam and Eve felt physically. Uh, there's a connection here. Some of you are already there. Some of you have already transferred from the Old Testament into the New Testament, and you've already been able to make the connection that where God provided the first sacrifice to clothe the nakedness and shame of Adam and Eve, so Jesus for us today clothes us in his righteousness because of the sacrifice he has provided on the cross with his son. You see, Jesus has been in the business. This is the gospel. The gospel is, is you're a sinner, you're naked, and you're filled with shame. Jesus comes, provides the sacrifice, clothes you with righteousness because of the atonement that he has provided on the cross. 
So I ask you again, when you feel guilty, when you're obsessed with your own sin, when it's clear that there is a separation between you and God, do you make the folly, the foolish attempt to clothe yourself? Are you guilty like I have been at times to clothe myself and to cover my shame and to cover my sin and to cover my life with these fake leaves that exist in the world? Or, or, or am I rushing into the presence of God and I'm running into the strong tower that is the name of the Lord and I'm wrestling with him and I'm feeling his love and behold, I'm aware of this sense that he is with me even to the end of the age. Do you want to clothe yourself or do you want to be clothed by the master? This is why the Bible follows into the New Testament and says, says, guess what? I'm the bridegroom and you're the bride and when you come to the altar, I clothe you in white because you were clean. Now, how do you continue to do that? You continue to confess. You continue to repent. Some, some of you, all, all that you need to do, and it's a stepping into God's grace, at the end of the day, just do a survey of your life and ask the Lord to forgive you for all the ways that you've tried to clothe yourself today or yesterday or this week, just do a survey. And as you do that survey, know that as it says in verse five, it's that quick, I acknowledge my sin to you, you forgave me of my sin. I acknowledge my sin, you forgave me of my sin. Now we know that it's already forgiven. But something happens to us when we admit our, our, our guilt and our shame and we recognize the goodness of God and how great he is and how desperately we need him. You have to take these moments and carve them out. And that's why uh, you've heard the statement, I'll close with this here real shortly, but you've heard the statement before, right? Love the sinner, hate the sin. Right? We've all heard that to some degree or another. And it's one of those statements actually deserves a little bit of, uh, of, of uh, critique. Is that a good thing to say? You know, love the sinner, hate the sin. Because I, I can't help but think of what Jesus said in Matthew chapter seven, where he says, you're a hypocrite, take the log out of your own eye so you can clearly take the speck out of your brother's eye. What is he saying? Well, he's saying really the same thing that Rosaria Butterfield says. Are you familiar with Rosaria Butterfield's critique on, on love the, the sinner and, and hate the sin? She says this, love the sinner, hate your own sin. Deal with the speck in your eye. What are you doing Focusing on everybody else's junk. I see how you're clothed. You look naked to me. Focus on your own. And then she goes on and says this. Who else knows that the sin that will undo me, the sin that will undo me is my own and not my neighbor's, no matter how big my neighbor's sin appears to be. What do we do? Behold, he's with us. His presence is not something we should fear. His presence is not something that we should run from. His presence is a tower that we run to. And we become completely bare before him. And as we stand completely bare before him, thoughts 
of unworthiness. Thoughts of shame, thoughts of past mistakes will come across you. And what I'm hoping you will hear is the Lord say, I love you and you're mine. I love you and you're mine. You are my people and I am your God. May we continue to embrace this reality that we must confess, we must repent. That's what it is to follow Jesus. That's what it is to be a disciple. May we all step into a more radical, committed, faithful relationship with the one we call our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen? Would you stand with me as we pray? Lord, I guess my prayer this morning would be that as we go from this place and many of us turn our TVs on, would you not allow your word to return void? Would you not allow the commentary, the touchdowns, the celebration, the agony of defeat, may none of it overshadow the victory of the cross and the permanence of your word. May we be faithful as you are faithful to us. In Jesus' name, the church said, amen. amen.